Lord, allow us this morning to humble ourselves before your most holy word, that you would have freedom to work in our hearts and minister, whether that be in confrontation, whether that be in conviction, whether that be in bringing healing perspective, Lord, whether that be in, in the clarity, Lord, that your word brings. But Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us? And Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? Simply, Lord, allow me to be your mouthpiece, your messenger for this text, so that we who are gathered here this morning can be more conformed to the image of your Son, that we can be what you want us to be. Would you be glorified now, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Why is it that bad things happen to people? Why is it that suffering exists? Why is it that hardship always seems to be on the news? That fires consume people's livelihoods? That sickness and disease feed the coffers of the hospitals and the funeral parlors? Why is it that sorrow and misery always seem to be just around the corner? Why is a 14-year-old boy riding a bike in Oakland run over by a car at 12.30 in the afternoon and the driver doesn't stop for four blocks while he's dragging him with him and that when he stops and the boy is dislodged, the driver takes off. Why does that kind of stuff happen? Why is 17, an Indonesian band playing in a concert by the beach, suddenly swallowed up by a tsunami, killing four of its members and many of those who are in attendance? Why do these things happen? Why is that a, a woman that many of you know by the name of Cheryl Ann Sammons, who was so keenly and actively involved in the, the life of women in third world countries, ministering to them, uh, being a, an advocate for them. Why is it that God would allow her to get cancer and two years later she would die? Why do these things happen? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is it that people go through so much trials and so much sickness? Why is there so much death and despair and heartbreak doesn't God say himself that he is sovereign over every outcome that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps? Then why does God include the steps and the outcome of suffering? Yet he does. And he does that in order to remind us of who he is. And that is what this book is about, that God very often uses hardship in order to knit our hearts to his sovereign, perfect, and always good will. Now that's a hard pill to swallow when you're going through the trial. But the book of Job is going to remind us over and over and over again that that is true. So what is the message of the book of Job? Well, Many of us right now are going through some kind of struggle. We suffer, we struggle, we get sick, we face the heartbreak of death and trials so many times and in so many ways, and sometimes those trials and those sufferings are so hard to stand under. And coping with our struggle is impossible apart from an omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign, and majestic God. We know who are followers of Christ that if he is not with us in that struggle, in that trial, in that heartache, we know that we are nothing. This is the message of Job. 
You ask most people, what is the message of Job? And they'll say, immediately, it's about suffering. And, and it's a book that's dealing with the hardships and the trials and the suffering and coping with all those impossible things. And it's written to give us tools to face those trials, to endure that suffering, to make sense of the impossible heartache that we're facing. And certainly Job will help us in many ways and give us some tools along those lines, but please hear this, the theme of suffering is only secondary in this book of Job. There's another focus that Job brings to our attention. And that focus is not suffering, it is something completely different. The point of this book is not to answer the question, what to do when your life hits the wall and you're falling off a cliff. This book isn't first and foremost about us, our lives, our circumstances, our grief, our pain, our sorrow. This book isn't ultimately about Job. This book is ultimately about God and revealing to us the kind of God that we worship and who this God is and what he is like and why he does what he does. It's a book about our relationship to God and about the fact that we need to be taught and constantly be reminded and strengthened in our understanding that this world that we live in and these lives of ours, that they don't exist first and foremost for us. We have got ourselves caught up with the culture's idea that all this around us and, and, and my life is all about me. But it's not. They don't exist first and foremost for us. And it isn't that those things don't matter. They are important, and they're important even to God. We know that because Scripture tells us that in other places. But God does care about us, doesn't he? He cares so much about us that he has a sacrificial love extended to us in the person of his son that we just celebrated over Christmas and will celebrate again when it comes time for Easter because his son came ultimately to die. And he didn't just do that for no reason at all. He came with a specific purpose, and that was to reconcile people to himself. Why? Because he loves us. We understand that. We get that. But our view of suffering, especially when it comes to suffering trials and heartaches, is fed by a culture that doesn't know God or a church that is shallow in their understanding of him. God doesn't exist for us as if his greatest purpose is to fulfill our pleasures and to fulfill our desires. God doesn't ultimately exist for our benefit. We exist and live for his glory. Let me just remind you of what our mission statement is here at Gateway Bible Church, and it helps us understand why we have said it this way. We exist to glorify God by being a community of believers who are actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We exist to glorify God by. God doesn't exist to glorify me by. But we get it the other way around. And sometimes I think we think that God is there to do what we want him to do. And that is why we reject the approaches to the book of Job as evidence for a prosperity gospel. It would come to the book of Job and say, look at the suffering of Job. Look at what he's going through. And we see the end of the story, and look at what he has in the end. See, suffering is a means to an end of greater Physical blessing. You've got to be nuts. That's nowhere near the point of the book. But that's the kind of stuff you hear about. That's the kind of message that is commonly presented, even within the context of the church. And when we have that kind of thinking, we have this I'm the focus of the book mentality 
as opposed to God is the focus of the book, reality. This book is about how to worship God in the midst of our suffering. And so when we are asking the questions, why am I facing so much hardship in my life? Why are my relationships so often in conflict? Or why is it that I can't hold a job? Or why is it that there never seems to be enough money? Or why is it that I have multiple physical struggles and the doctors can't fully understand them all? And so I'm just, I'm just slipping away. Why is it that the doctor uh, is giving me the news that I have cancer, that the cancer has returned? When we're asking those questions, we're not looking for some list of what we need to do or some, some weighted prayer that's somehow going to magically change our circumstances or some system or formula that we just plug ourselves into that's going to solve the problem or so that God's going to take away that despair. We ask those questions to nestle into the only one who knows and understands and wants to grow us in our relationship with him. Now, friends, I like what Rico Tice reminds us. He says, the gospel is not, oh, Lord, my life is empty, fill me. The gospel is, oh, Lord, I'm an offense to you, rescue me. You see, when it's, when it's self-focused and God is somehow the one who's supposed to do things for me, we get it all mixed up when the reality is, Lord, I am an offense to you. The only thing that you can do is to rescue me. Another commentator said this, this book does not set out to answer the problem of suffering. The book sets out to proclaim God, uh, a God so great and majestic that no answer is needed for even an answer, or if an answer were given, it would transcend the finite mind's able or ability to grasp. The answer that God would give, you would not be able to comprehend. The book of Job is not teaching us why man should suffer, but it's teaching us about who is in control when we suffer. That our God is a big God, a big, big God. He is bigger than you can comprehend. And friends, you and I need to know how big he is. And even as we go on that journey, we'll fall short in comprehending how big he is. But we need to grow. And the problem is, because so much of the church has been shallow in their pursuit of, of deeper things or theology or, or doctrine or just understanding God, we have brought God down to a level where we like him like us. He is our homeboy. Right? He's our buddy. He's our pal. No, he's not. He is almighty God. Yes, he calls you friend, but not in the kind of casual friend. He's friend because you could not be his friend unless he welcomed you into his family. He is so other, and we are so privileged to be a part of that. But we want to we wanna kind of milk him down. And when we do that, we lose our awe of who he is. When we suffer, it isn't trying to figure out how we can fix it. It isn't trying to figure out where God fits into the picture or where I can plug him into the picture of my life to make everything better. That's not the point of Job. The point of Job is that God is the picture. Johnny Erickson Tata, many of you know, who's been through all sorts of suffering herself, reminds us, well, God is not a missing piece of our life, which once found can be bolted into place so that now our spiritual lives can run smoothly and efficiently. No, God isn't just the all-important missing piece of our life. Like Paul says in Colossians 3, Christ is our life. He's not the missing piece. He is our life. We don't just add him when suffering hums. He's already there. Now why is the question, isn't it? Why is the question we ask when we are struggling and we face some kind of hardship or suffering? 
Why me? Why now? Why here? Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? And the question why ultimately is not a question. It's a demand. Because I want answers. I want to know the reason. I want to be able to connect the dots. In our finite human thinking, we think that there are reasons for what happens to us. It's what we find in the well-known movie, The Sound of Music. Now, if you remember, as the story comes to an end, the captain, Von Trapp, speaks to Maria of his, his love for her, and she begins to sing. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are, standing there, loving me, whether or not you should, for somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. And that's a kind of a, a statement today. Boy, I must have done something good to deserve her. Or I must have done something good to deserve him. Now, if we take that logic, friends, and we put it in the opposite direction, this is what we get. Bad things happen to bad people because they must have done something bad. You see that? If you're going to say one, you have to say the other. And so then what happens is if something bad happens to me, then logically it must be because something bad or sinful I have done to deserve it. But that is not how the way it is. That's not how God interacts with us. Now certainly there are principles in Scripture, sowing and reaping, and you commit a particular sin, there are natural consequences, but we're talking about suffering, we're talking about things that happen to us that are not connected to those obvious things. I mean, why is it that a 14-year-old kid is dragged four blocks under a car? I mean, is it because he lied to his mom the day before? You see what I'm saying? See how foolish that would be? You can't connect those dots. But it happens. And friends, the options we've talked about so far are not the answer the book of Job gives. Job asks the question, why, way over 20 times. And God responds to the question, why, with the, with the statement, who? And the who is himself. Listen to Job's final confession and repentance as he understands who God really is. And, and we just get a glimpse here. This is Job 42. Job 42, verses 1 through 6. Listen. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and will make it known to me. Or uh, make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, with the rest of our time here this morning, we want to get as prepared for the book of Job as possible. I wanted to kind of just emphasize the, this, this whole theme of suffering and the struggle that we have and some of the, the faulty thinking that is there, but just now we want to take kind of an overview look at this book. And so here is my proposition for today, and I think it will help us because it fits the context of what's going on. We want to set the stage for the book of Job so that we can set our hearts on God. Now let me just say something here. We read Job 1, 1 through 12. Everything that goes on in Job 1, 1 through 12 is all taking place before tragedy happens. It is the calm before the storm. 
It is life as usual. It is normal. There's something going on on earth, and there's something going on in heaven. Job is unaware of what's happening in heaven. Life is still going on merrily. But there are these players in this story that we want to look at. And of course, the first player that we want to see, the first member of the cast, so to speak, the first of the characters is this man, Job. And so we're going to focus our attention here in the first six verses or so and ask ourselves the question, what do we learn from our text about this man, Job? First of all, let's read verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. You'll also notice in verse 7, the Lord refers to Job as my servant. And so, first of all, I just want you to notice he's a godly man. And we have these expressions, my servant, which, of course, in the Old Testament is a very important phrase. It reminds us of the prophecy in Isaiah 53, where the expression, my servant, refers to the Messiah and ultimately, the Messiah is the supreme servant of God. He had an especially deep relationship with God, but Job, we find, also had a relationship with God. And then we're given here in the text um, these four descriptions of Job. He is blameless. The word blameless here means whole. A person of integrity. There's no major integrity issue with Job. It expresses the integrity of his inner life, his inner being. The, the expression upright has the idea of to be straight or on the level. It has to do with Job's interaction with other people. It expresses integrity of his outward living. So he was a, a man of integrity, both inwardly and outwardly so far. And then we're told he feared God. Of course, this expression is throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And with that wisdom, which is not academic knowledge, wisdom is knowledge applied. So we would say that, that wisdom is knowing what to say and when to say it. It is knowing the right answer and knowing when to give that right answer. So it's knowledge, but it's skill and application of that knowledge. So Job here so far is a God-fearing man whose inward life and outward life demonstrate integrity. And then it tells us that he turned away from evil. The idea there is to recoil from evil because you're afraid of it, because you're bothered by it, or you're despising it. And if we, we think of the, the character in the Old Testament by the name of Joseph, and how he was being pursued by Potiphar's wife, and, and Joseph turned away from that evil so violently that he left his cloak, and he ran out as fast as he could out into the wilderness, and he was not, he was not concerned about the consequence. The cost wasn't the issue. His integrity was what was most important to him at that particular point in time. Most people would have stayed. Joseph wouldn't. He turned away from evil. So what the author of the story is telling us is that Job was a man of integrity who feared God and despised evil. He was a man of rock-solid Integrity And the writer is going out of his way to, to look at all the different angles to express the character of Job. He's shouting at us, pay attention to the integrity of this man. He is truly righteous. Now, this doesn't mean that he was without sin. He's a descendant of Adam, just like us. But the point of verse 1 is to make it absolutely clear that even though Job is a sinner like the rest of us, what happens to him in this book is not because of his sins. Now, there's a couple of other scriptures that are worth us paying attention to. In James chapter 5 and verse 11, we are told there um, that by, James uses Job as an example of steadfastness or endurance as it relates to suffering. 
uh, along with mentioning the compassion and the mercy of the Lord. Interesting that those things are both there working together in that text. And then in Ezekiel chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 14, let me encourage you to turn there. Ezekiel 14, uh, this is the only other time we're going to find Job mentioned. And let me kind of just give you a little bit of the, the context here. God is, is bringing judgment on Jerusalem because of their sin and their idolatry. And notice what it says, what God says here, beginning at verse 12, we'll pick it up at, through verse 14 of chapter 14. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver by their own lives, by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. Now, what does this tell us about Job? The point is to say that even if these three godliest of men who ever lived in Jerusalem, it would still not be enough for God to not destroy the city because of its sin. Now, the, the point here I want us to see is that the, the writer here, God is, a, is, is allowing us to see that Job is among those who are considered to be by those in the patriarchal times as truly godly. That's the kind of man he is. That's the kind of caliber he is in his godliness. So the book of Job testifies to that, but it is also testified by the rest of Scripture that he is a godly and a righteous man. Not only that, he is also a rich man. He's a rich man. We would consider him a multi-millionaire. Job didn't name it and claim it because he already had it. He didn't need to. Um, he was rich in family. We get that from, from verse 2 there. that simply tells us there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had a full family, a wonderful family. We even see some further interaction in the text here because of that family. But he was also rich in possessions. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. I don't know what happened to male donkeys, but, um, and very many servants then to take care of all. Now, to give you some perspective, there was someone who was an American who was traveling in some eastern country who was offered five camels for his wife. Okay? So just think, I mean, if, if your wife means a lot to you, 3,000 camels, that's a, that's, a, that's a lot of worth, all right? Just trying to give you some, some perspective here. This is a picture of a very, very rich man in his time. Now, friends, it's, it's unusual to find people who are both incredibly wealthy and genuinely godly. And Jesus says it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul tells Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And that was Job. Godly, rich in a way that honors God. He was also then rich in reputation. Job was sort of a, of a shepherd king, a man of enormous influence, both um, in the nearby city, which is talked about later in the book, as well as in the countryside where he had his possessions. In the discourses that take place in the story, we find out that Job was unlike so many rich people uh, in that he used his wealth to help others who were in distress. He gave to the poor. He helped those who were blind. He took care of orphans and widows. He was a counselor for those who were troubled. He was an encourager and leader for many. A lot of this is coming from chapter 29 in particular. 
He served the cause of justice. And so ultimately, he was rich in his reputation as the kind of man that people admired, not just because he had riches, but because he was a good and honorable man who happened to have riches and used his riches in such a way that were just not selfish, but were for others. And then we also find out that he is a faithful father. As a faithful father, he was a faithful overseer of the home. Look at verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. Now, we can assume that that day was likely their birthday. So they would have this birthday celebration that lasted probably a week. And this is this wonderful feast, seven times in a year. You enjoy your family getting together. Job enjoyed his family getting together, and he, he, he loved his family getting together, and he made it a point that his family would get together. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. Job was in the prime of his life, so to speak, as a father. Seven sons and three daughters still gathering together as family to rejoice over one's good fortune, health, and happiness. You know what it's like when families get together. You know what it's like when children get older and they, they're no longer around, right? And I realize it's a different context, but they love to get together. There's no mention here of marriage. We don't see that. doesn't mean that they were or weren't. But what we have here is a picture of a family in harmony, enjoying one another and regularly celebrating with each other. But not only that, he's a faithful priest over his family. Although Job is a faithful father, and he is leading his family in unity and harmony, he is a faithful father because he cares most for their souls. And at his core, Job is concerned about the relationship of his children with the creator of the universe. So at the end of every feast or birthday celebration, Job would gather his family together early in the morning and offer burnt offerings of praise and sacrifice to God. We see it in verse 5. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. In other words, come, right, consecrate you. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So he's eager and zealous for his family to be in right relationship with God. And so he sends for his children, and he consecrates them. And then he offers these burnt offerings. Now, later in history of, of Israel, a burnt offering would be the most expensive form of sacrifice, in which the whole sacrifice um, would be consumed. It would be an animal. And it pictures the hot anger of God burning up the, the animal in the place of the worshiper whose sins would have made them liable to be burned up in the presence of God. That's the whole picture that's happening here with us. So you can imagine Job offering up each sacrifice one at a time, likely saying to one of his sons, son, this one is for you, consuming fire. And that son watching that sacrifice being consumed on the altar. And then in saying, daughter, come here. I'm going to offer one up for you. And they're, they're seeing what's going on. They're, they're experiencing this sacrifice for them, this sacrifice that is their substitute. And by virtue of doing this, he is ministering to his children about the need to be in a right relationship with God. What was it that was so serious that Job insisted on doing this, this, uh, this after every party? Here's seven times in the year this is going on. It says, for Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. It wasn't because the parties had turned into some drunken orgies or something like that. It's simply because he was anxious for the fact that their hearts may have strayed away and come to the place that they would curse God or, or think in their heart, I wish he didn't even exist. And so he wants to make sure that an offering is given up to pay for that potential sin. Job knows that what matters most is not the appearance of godliness, 
but a godly heart. And so we read, thus Job did continually. And this is our picture of Job. I mean, this is, this is the picture of what life was like for Job. Faithful father, godly, well-respected. Life is fun. The family's healthy. They enjoy being together. And yet he is one who is walking with God. That's Job. Next character is Satan. Now let's read verses 6 through 12 again. And notice what it tells us about Satan. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from waking up, uh, walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand against him uh, only against him, do not stretch out your hands. So Satan went from the presence of the Lord. Now, we're not going to deal with all that's in the text, but we're going to pick up some things that help us to know some things about Satan. First of all, I want to talk about the fact that we often have a distorted view of Satan that really comes from the Middle Ages or Dante's Inferno. This idea of uh, Satan as this, this red devil with a pitchfork and cloven hoofs um, and, you know, the sharp pointy tail um, is a picture uh, that came up during the Middle Ages by those who were Christians who wanted to mock Satan for his pride. But that picture then ended up being a caricature that stuck so that's not the picture we have in Scripture. That's not what you're going to find as you open up the pages. But it's a picture that man came up with to mock him, to laugh at him, to ridicule him. And yet that is the picture that is often what people think of today. Then there's this whole idea of dualism. It's dualism. Dualism basically says there are two forces in this world. There's good and there's evil. And we aren't sure exactly who's going to win. I mean, just, just watch a Marvel movie. You'll know what I'm talking about. If it were not for this good and evil thing going, Hollywood would not have much to go by. Right? The same would be true about this whole concept of a red devil outfit thing, this, this, this kind of demonic looking. When I say demonic looking, we're using the Dante's Inferno kind of thinking because that's where it came from, this kind of thing. But that's not necessarily what Scripture reveals for us. But these caricatures are excellent fodder for Hollywood. Still, because of the prevalence of these distortions, we do suffer. And when we do suffer, we wonder if someone or somehow Satan has got a foothold or gained a stronghold and God is off somewhere not knowing what to do. As if this, this, this good and evil thing, it's like, oh, evil's winning right now. God must be sleeping somewhere. God is not sleeping. God's fully aware. God is in control. So that's a distorted view. So let's just think through a biblical view. And we're not going to go through everything about Satan, but we're going to focus primarily on what's revealed in this text, which I think is helpful. In particular, here in this text, we see something about the relationship of Satan with the creator of the universe. He answers to God. The sons of of God or the angels who come to present themselves to God. In other words, they are duty-bound to check in with the Creator and to give an account of their comings and goings. So we can say, based on what's happening here, three things. Let me just give you three things. First of all, uh, he's homeless. He's restless. Remember, he was thrown out of heaven for rebellion into an arena 
And he is restless. He's coming and going, coming and going. He is not at home at all. Secondly, he is shackled, or we could say he's chained. Satan can only do what God gives him freedom to do. Do you see that here? It's not that Satan's saying, well, I'm going to go do this. Uh-uh-uh-uh. God's, God initiates the conversation, have you considered my servant Job? And then he says, all right, I'll let you go do this, but don't do this. Satan can only do what God has given him permission to do. He's chained. He's not running free. And God's somehow trying to find him. Chasing around. Where is he? I don't know. Here he pops up here. Oh, let's go get him. I can't find him. Where are you? That's not it at all. God knows exactly where he is. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he knows exactly what he's allowing him to do. Third thing. Satan is not God. He does not have an equality to God. Nor does he have the attributes of God. He is not omniscient. That means all-knowing. He is not omnipresent. That means present everywhere. He is not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. You can't have two all-powerful people. There's only one who's all-powerful. That is the God, creator of the universe. He does not know what you're thinking. He can't read your mind. He cannot be everywhere. He is not all-powerful. Now, I would just say this. Although he cannot read your mind, he has been the, the student of human nature for so long, he likely knows what you're thinking by the actions that you're doing. But he's limited. He's a finite creature whom God created and is in complete control of. He is not the ruler over hell or the lake of fire. No, he is one of the many who will suffer in its flames for eternity. Again, thank you, Hollywood. But so much of our thinking about Satan does not come from Scripture. It comes from other places, does it not? And we can make two very unwise mistakes making too little of him. We just ignore him and pretend that he's not there or that we don't need to know anything about him or that we won't ever have to encounter him because we have Jesus on our team. And yes, we have Jesus on our team, but if we read our scripture carefully, we have to pay attention to him because we're told to pay attention to him. So we also want to be careful that we don't make too much of him. In other words, we're consumed by him. We're, just, we're seeing Satan under every rock in every bush. Friends, Satan is restless, he's limited, and he's not God, but he is a strong creature full of malice for anyone who is a follower of God. And you see, he is to be resisted, Scripture says. We are to wear the spiritual armor to fight against his schemes, as we sang today. These are realities, but they're balanced out with the comfort and the counsel of Scripture. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is this, this, this commentary on what Satan has done and what God will do to him, looking ahead at to what will happen at the cross. We're told when Jesus dies on the cross that the prince of this world is being driven out. That's in John 12. In other words, Christ's death on the cross begins the judgment of Satan. And see, while Christ's death on the cross looked like Satan's greatest victory, it was actually Satan's destruction. We read in Revelation 12, 9, Satan's rebellion. This is how it all happened. Verse 12, 9 says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 20 and verse 10, we read, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. He is not marching around hell, ruling his kingdom. 
He is not omnipotent. He is a rebellious creature that God has doomed to an ultimate eternity in the lake of fire. So Satan is in chains now. I don't mean that in the sense of he is bound away from us, but there's nothing that he can do except God allows him to do it. But he is falling, and he's falling, and he's falling. And every time someone is converted, Satan's falling again. And, and, and there's a, every time there's a great awakening of the gospel, he's falling again. And, and every time there are people turning to God and churches are planted and people are growing and, and the gospel is spreading, he's falling again. And at the cross, Satan lost his throne to have a sway over the earth, but he didn't lose his activity. He's condemned but he's falling, kicking, and screaming. He will not win, but he will cause great destruction and bring about great deception. So Satan is a chained beast, but a powerful beast, highly organized with principalities and powers and rulers of darkness that are still at his command, but they are not too powerful for God because God has all of that under his control. But he is a main character in this story. Third, Job's three friends. They're introduced in chapter 2 and they sit with him for a week in silence. This is after the calamities have hit Job. And when they speak, Ward's Words pour out. Their words are well-intended, I think. They're full of good thoughts and insights, and many of the things they say are actually um, true. Their words are praise for Almighty God, but ultimately they give Job bad counsel. And Job consistently maintains his integrity that he has not sinned in some way to deserve this kind of heartache or tragedy, but they are convinced that he has, and they're ultimately saying to Job, bad things happen to bad people. And you're going through this, and you must have done something to deserve this. So stop claiming that you're not sinful. Stop being so full of pride. Now, friends, as we take our time to work through those passages where these men are speaking to Job and Job is responding, we want to listen to the counsel of Job's friends so we can find ourselves listening to the counsel that we have often given people who are struggling with suffering that is not the truth of the gospel or his word. Because we may have been guilty of the same thing. We can also hear the kind of counsel that others have given us when we have gone through suffering. If we turn our attention to the end of the story, we'll find these words from God. He says, speaking now to Eliphaz the Temanite, one of Job's friends, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job had. We'll do well to pay close attention to the sections where Job's friends attempt to counsel Job and be humble and be teachable and to be willing to repent. There is a fourth friend, and um, his name is Elihu. He comes in later in the story. But these are his friends. And then, of course, there's the Lord. And we see in our text, God identified as the Lord, the Almighty God. He stands alone. And a few characteristics of him. First of all, the Lord is a sovereign God. Listen to how Job describes him in chapter 23. You may want to turn there. Chapter 23. I'm just picking two verses here, verses 13 and 14. Job says, but he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does, for he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. 
In other words, he stands alone as one. He is unchangeable. He cannot be turned back because he will always do what he sets out to do. And he finishes his purposes in my life, Job says, and that would be true for us too. And he has so many things that he's working on for us. In other words, God is a sovereign God. Whatever he chooses will come to pass. And he is in complete control over the universe, over this world, over your life. This is echoed by Ephesians 1.11. We're told there that God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's also echoed by Romans 8.28. You know it well. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He is a sovereign God, and we're going to see that over and over and over again coming out of the lips of Job, even of his friends. Secondly, he is the majestic creator. Throughout this book, we see references to God as the one who created and is over his creation. Just look at chapter 9 where Job speaks about God. I'm going to pick up at verse 5. He removes mountains, and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Well, the answer is God, the Almighty, the creator of the universe. He is wise, just, and fair. The, the, the friends look to God and they, they, they give testimony to the fact that he is the true source of wisdom, of justice, and fairness. There's no questioning the character of God in this book. Only the reason for Job's suffering. And finally, he is the only answer. At the end, again, when it's all said and done, Job realizes that his God is more wonderful than he can, he can just even imagine. Now, friends, I've just given you a load to think about as far as these characters are concerned. And it's purposeful because we want to set the stage for this book. But I, I want to set the stage, but I want to move now into what I've called setting our hearts. This is the, this is the application. This is the, this is the what do we do with this side of it, right? Now, I want to begin, first of all, with something very simple and practical, and that's this. Become familiar with the big picture. In your handout, you should have also uh, a, an outline of the book. And I would just encourage you to stick that right in the front of Job and just in your Bible, just, just mark it or, or see how it unfolds according to this outline. I think sometimes we get to Job and we just see poetry and we're like, ah, this is hard, what do we do? But when you understand what's happening in this story, you have the, the narrative and you see where the, the calamity happens and then you see Job's three friends come and sit and then you have Job's lament about his situation. He just wants to die, wish he wasn't born and then his three friends kick in, and Job responds to them. And this happens in cycles, and you see that happening. And, and God is not speaking for like 36 chapters. And this will help you kind of walk through this. I was doing this just a couple of days ago, just wanting to read big sections of it. And it's just like, it was just amazing what, what I was seeing in, in the pages of this poetry. So don't, don't be afraid of it. Read it, study it, pray as you're doing it, discuss it with your fellow church members here, review the outline, use it as a guide, as a help. Secondly, desire to grow in your theology of suffering. The things you'll learn from studying carefully through the book of Job may not be what you need right now, but you will need them soon enough. The time to start thinking through a theology of suffering is not when suffering comes, then it will be too late. Because often what happens is you begin to, to grab at whatever you can, and much of it will be a distortion of what Scripture teaches. So, 
make it a priority to study, think, and talk with one another and grow in both understanding as well as application of the, the theology of suffering. You will need it when you go through suffering. You will need it when your loved ones go through suffering. My friends, we, we must all have a theology of suffering. But it's like one of those things, we don't really want that because we don't want to go through suffering. <laughs> but friends, we're human, we're frail, and life is full of suffering. So we need to be ready for it so that we can enter into it in a way that would honor God. And I think we have that example from Job. And then... I would encourage us to look ahead to Christ. You, know, you probably notice that the book of Job is likely happening sometime during the patriarchal era, the age of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're not told exactly when, but there's no priests, there's no Israel, there's no temple, and he then acts as a priest for his family. And we see him going to his flocks and getting a lamb and placing it on the altar and hearing it scream and taking its life and offering it as an offering to God. And as he's doing that, he is looking face to face at a picture of someone else who will one day be a sacrifice once for all. A man who came and was innocent. A man who was offering himself for those who would be called his children, a man who did nothing in his past to deserve the suffering that he experienced on that altar, the cross. And in fact, if you think that Job's suffering is bad, you don't know anything about it because the experience of what Jesus had on that cross was far Worse than you can even imagine because it wasn't just the physical suffering of death on a cross. It was the weight of the wrath of God on his shoulders. So although Job may not have comprehended fully what he was looking at, the picture for us is there. There is a sacrifice once for all that reconciles us to the Father and we then can nestle into the Father as we wrestle with the suffering and the troubles and the struggles of our lives. And it certainly sheds light on that very familiar text that I will leave you with this morning from 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, that's Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. The Father willed this on the Son. The innocent Son. The undeserving Son. And the result of that, for we who believe, is reconciliation, redemption, sin paid for, welcoming into a family. This is ultimately where this book takes us, is to see that Jesus is the answer we need. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, help us. We have flown through this text in such a way to give a big picture of the story. But Lord, I ask that you would allow what we have done to prepare our hearts to begin to think about what suffering looks like when we have you as our God. Not necessarily, Lord, looking for quick relief or fixes or changes to our suffering, but first of all, being in awe of you as a God who knows, who understands, 
who is aware, who's fully in control. And Lord, may we nestle ourselves into your loving arms, trusting you, leaning on your wisdom, rejoicing that you are with us, glorifying you for your majestic and beautiful character. Lord, we are humble, simple people. Give us a fresh awareness of who you are. We plead, we beg for your glory, your precious name. Amen.